Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand, book two, chapters 43 through 45. Let's start the show. As we move into book two, characters seek out others to fend off loneliness and madness and head across the country. First off, Nick Andros, deaf, mute, and currently blind in one eye, meets Tom Cullen, a developmentally disabled man. This leads to some communication problems. They also briefly meet a young woman, Julie Lawry. Next, Larry Underwood has given up his motorcycle and to some extent his will. Haunted by bad dreams and being alone, things perk up slightly when he encounters Nadine Cross and Joe, a young feral boy. They get even better when he finds a guitar and signs of survivors in messages left by Harold Lauder. Finally, we meet Mother Abigail, the 108-year-old woman living in Nebraska who many of the characters are dreaming about. We get some background about Abigail and her history, and the first group, led by Nick, makes it to her house. Sean, so begins book two of The Stand. It does, and the first thing I noticed in book two of The Stand is that these chapters are so long. I know yeah. that I know that we're reading the same amount of, of pages per episode for the most part, but for me there is a distinct difference when you're reading 15 chapters of 10 pages each versus three chapters of 50 pages each. Yeah, it feels like almost like the book is slowing down. Absolutely. And it's it's not really, but it just sort of feels like, you know, the the breaks are further apart. So the moment you take to catch your breath kind of as you're reading and you finish a chapter and start a new one. Yeah, it's a it's a longer haul in yeah. between. And we get to spend more time with these characters in, you know, instead of sort of bouncing around and, and getting it all across as we're, you know, spending those 50 chapters with one character. And especially as they start to meet up with each other, we get a little bit more crossover than we've gotten back. But it is very much a distinct change from where we were. Um, and, you know, I think that that is part of the reason why King has chosen a to indicate that this is a book two, right? Like the things have have definitely yeah. changed here. Um, I had read a little bit about how you could make a comparison between King dividing this up into three books and the Lord of the Rings saga being three books. And so now we've moved from the Fellowship of the Ring into the Two Towers section. So now we've got, you know, a, a book two that we've moved into and things are a little bit different. Yeah, this is definitely a line of demarcation in the story. And isn't the the subtitle of book two the on the border? Or something? Yes, a line of demarcation, and this is book two is called on the border. Very clever what you did there, Jay. Yeah, but what is the border? Yeah, we've already kind of sort of flipped from apocalypse to post apocalypse, so we're like well into the apocalypse now. Yep. It's so what? What border are we on? Yeah. So, I mean, having read this book a number of times, I have a good sense of what that potential border might be. Um, but I don't want to give too much away because I don't think we're quite there yet. But from a philosophical standpoint of where we are in this book, we're almost on this border of the 
end of civilization and the beginning of a new civilization. So a lot of the characters are talking about that um, coming together and, and what comes next. So they are sort of spread apart, diffuse individuals and small groups, and they're starting to come together to form a civilization. And as you create civilizations, you naturally create borders of some sort is sort of, this is my area of influence. This is my line of, of demarcation. This is where I can be. Um, and they're also on this border of sanity and insanity in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, much of what we see with these characters are characters who are not doing well. We talked a little bit a few episodes ago about how characters are going through some post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, PTSD. Mm -hmm. But here it's even further than that. They're not just reacting to an event, but just sort of how life is right now. Um, I'm lonely. I'm having terrible dreams that are keeping me up and 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 causing me to lose sleep and question my sanity and hallucinations and I don't know who I can trust and who I can't and different people are in different states of of that there's Joe the feral boy that we see that get, that Larry meets up with and this kid's obviously totally gone at some point like he's running around with a knife and you get sort of a lord of the flies impression from him that yeah you, you know he's not speaking he's not doing anything um and all a lot of the characters are on that so i think some of that is is some of the border stuff that we might be talking about i can dig it we're definitely at the end of the beginning. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, there's an actual border that they make a big deal of. Tom Cullen can't read. Mm -hmm. He's basically illiterate, but they get to the end of the county that he lives in and he's able to read the sign and he's obviously not reading it, but he knows the sign because his father took him there when he was younger and says, if you ever pass this sign, you've left the county and you know, you're going to get a whipping for that. And right. so- it's it's a big deal for him to cross that border uh, of, of that sign and, and go on this new adventure as they cross past that border, he and Nick heading towards Nebraska and Mother Abigail. Hmm. Seems important, like, for Tom Cullen to recognize a particular word. Yeah. And this section starts off with two epigraphs. Um, one is a Paul Simon song about America. The song is American Tune by Paul Simon. And the other one is Living in the USA by Chuck Berry. So two immediate references to America. And Rocky. <laughs> and Rocky. That's that that's uh James Brown living in America, not living in the USA by Chuck Berry. Come on, Jay. <laughs> but a lot of this section also takes place right around July 4th. So all, there are these American overtones to this, which I thought was a little odd considering what you would consider America, the government, the borders, the uniting of people, that all that's gone. So does America even exist? And 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 what's King trying to say here? Well, so far, every part of the story has taken place in the United States. There is that. And all of our characters are from the United States. They all speak English. I mean, Maine is Maine is basically Canada. I don't know if we should really <laughs> count them. Uh, um, if I had my way. If you had your way, <laughs> you'd just shrink New England by a state. Oh, more than one, but that's the, that's the only one we're talking about right now. Ah, oh, man. <laughs> there goes all of our main listeners. <laughs> this feels like it's an American story, right? To the extent that the story goes beyond the borders of the United States, it's to know that the U.S. military has deliberately sent infection, like the mm. Captain Tripp's disease around the world so that the whole world will will catch this disease and die but 
we haven't spent any time outside of where our our characters have have been and they've all been somewhere in the in the US. We haven't even like gone to other parts of North America. Like no time in Mexico, no time in Canada. It's just yep. I know I kind of feel like King's telling us a story about America and he's focusing his story on the United States and and how this affects it. Yeah, I mean, you might say that this is King's attempt at the great American novel both in, you know, location but also in epic sweeping path and scope so uh yeah it's interesting that he's making that deliberate choice here and um it is a travelogue as well right as we see these characters move along the country and experience different parts of america and i i know we're going to see more of it as we go on so yeah so book two here we go so in addition to staying with a lot of our characters and meeting some new ones, the big one that we meet is Mother Abigail, who we've been hinting at for a while, and we spend a lot of time learning about her entire story, almost from from birth to where she is now, as we get these flashbacks of to what she thinks about with her husbands and her, her growing up, etc. Um, but a lot of what I think is important with Mother Abigail is her religious perspective. Um, she is yeah. obviously a very religious person, and everything sort of is is framed in that way. Um, you know, she's always actually speaking to God out loud uh, throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, when she's singing, she's singing psalms and and hymns. Um, she's always praying to God, and she thinks about how her life has been led as a result of her religion, which is very important, I would imagine. The fact the king's pointing this out. Yeah, and it's certainly important to Abigail. It is impossible to divorce her from the prism of her faith, I think is is what you're saying, and and I agree. Um, I don't know if that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing or, or, or just generally problematic. It seems like it's worked well for her for 108 years, <laughs> right. and, and she's ready to keep on trucking for as long as her body will keep working. But when Nick finally meets her in person and they have a chance to actually kind of just talk one-on-one nick reveals that he's not religious at all mm-hmm. and he's worried that this could be like a source of friction at, you know if nothing else and she's totally fine with it she's yeah like, look you don't have to believe you know god doesn't need you to believe in him for you know he he's he's just fine without that and nick's like eh, you know <laughs> i don't know but i'll still follow your lead right it's interesting because she immediately pegs him as a leader yeah. that the group that he's with, like, he's the leader. I need to talk to you one-on-one. Um, you've had this vision of me. I've, I knew you were coming and, and here we are. And he does question the religion. Like, I think he's a little put off by it at first. Like he respects mm-hmm. her. He understands her. He's drawn to her. And yet this whole religion thing, he's like, wait, 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 I, we may be on a mission of some sort, but it's not a mission from God like I believe in. Yeah, we're not the Blues Brothers. Yeah, we're not the Blues Brothers, you and I, uh, Abby. Uh, but I get I get what you, you think about. But you said, like, you don't know if it's going to be a source of friction. But, like, for Nick, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has to go walk away and think about it. Like, what, what am I doing here? Why, why, am I, why are we even talking about this stuff? Um, we already know that, that she's an important piece of this. And if, if she's sort of representing the good, then we can assume and, and led by God, then that immediately would put us in a frame of mind of thinking, okay, well, what does Randall Flagg represent and where is he at? We've already seen some of those religious overtones 
even if Nick didn't see them, but like Randall Flagg trying to um to tempt him and, and, and lead him astray and, and him not falling for it. So those religious overtones are already set up throughout. But this is something that I think King is doing deliberately. Um, I'm sure some of it was deliberate in terms of like as he was writing the story, but also uh, looking at it through the lens of the Dark Tower a little bit. Like Flag doesn't seem to portray himself as an agent of the devil. No. He's not thinking of himself or portraying himself in a biblical fashion, but he clearly represents evil. So if the the other side of Mother Abigail's Christian faith is, if the other side of that coin is, you know, of God is the devil, then Flag is an agent of the devil, right? But I think that's the framing that King's using here. He's putting, he's in, he's applying that framing to Abigail, and therefore everything else, like the seed crystal in a, you know, it, it is sort of clinging to that and mm. forming a structure based on that. But if we look at this from a, you know, other worlds than these perspective, right? Flag exists in these other places and he's effectively the same character everywhere else. And he's not, he's not an agent of the devil. He's an agent of the Crimson King. Yep. Like he's an agent of just pure evil. So we don't need a religious framework to understand him or to see how he fits into the, the wider world. And we don't need Christianity to, to have a counterpoint. Right. King gives that to us in the form of the, the white, the thing that, that Roland and the gunslingers and the line of Eld represent. If you go to another level of the tower, this becomes an a-religious thing, but it's still goodness versus badness, light versus dark. and. I think at its core, that's what the stand is. Yeah. But Abigail being a lifelong Christian, like that's and that prism that she's always lo- lived her whole life looking through. That's what makes sense to her. Right. Like Nick is going to have to find a way to adapt to that, but not necessarily become a believer. Like he doesn't have to be. Mm. He doesn't have to become a believer to, so that he can fight against flag. Correct. And, you know, King has sort of made that clear in his other books that we've read. So in Salem's lot, Barlow even says like, I was around way before Jesus, you know, like, yeah. And he questions Callahan's faith, but he does not see himself as like, Oh, it's Christianity versus vampirism. Barlow doesn't think that. Cause he's like, there've been plenty of religions who've hunted me down and, and can't do it. And I'm more powerful right. than all of them. Um, and then, even when we do see some sort of Christianity in the Dark Tower, it's not brought to the forefront. So there are those who worship the man Jesus, but it almost seems like another sect of a different type of religion within the world of the Dark Tower. Like we don't get a sense like, oh, these are the good guys that are aligned with with the gunslingers. Like it's just sort of they exist and they're out there, but Roland doesn't have any sort of affinity one way or the other for, for them or any association with them. Yeah, that's just a manipulative person co-opting the idea of religion to manipulate groups of people. Right. It's not anything that it has a particular power or or influence. Um, and heck, the little sisters of Luria traveled around dressed as though they were nuns, and and with some of the <laughs> symbology of of like the Christian cross and stuff like that. Or actually, it's kind of like the Red Cross more than anything. Yeah. But still, that's an adaptation and evolution of the Christian cross. It's like you know, we're 
we're doing God's work by helping the sick. So these things don't necessarily align always with good and evil. Right. And I think that's the fundamental, that, that idea, that's the foundation of this. It's good and evil. Abigail sees good as a synonym for God. So that means that evil is a synonym for the devil. Yeah. But it doesn't need to be. No, no. So uh, Abigail meets up with uh, this group, and almost as soon as they get to Hemingford home, Nick and his group, they spend uh, a day or two eating well on the the, the chickens and the ham mm-hmm. that they have, and then uh, they're on their way further west. So they're heading out to Boulder. So as soon as they get there, they're they're heading out. And so Nick and Abigail, I would say, are sort of the first of our two strange bedfellows, which is the next section we want to talk about how different characters are meeting up in in this part of the book that make for unlikely pairings Mm -hmm. that offer conflict and humor and and some other things. So Nick and Abigail are one, um, but we see some other ones. And a lot of this has to do with the overcoming loneliness that we talked about before, where people were, were off on their own, dealing with things in different ways. But when they have a chance to pair up, they jump at it, no matter what yeah. happens. And that's what causes this, these sort of odd pairings. Yeah, it's kind of like you, you, you can't choose your family. You're, you're born into your family, but you can choose your friends. Yeah. But when there are just a few people left, you're back to that. You can't be that choosy about who you, you know, it's like your freshman roommate in college. Like, <laughs> who is it going to be? Are you going to become friends? Is it going to work out or is it going to be the worst? Yeah. And for a lot of these, it's kind of the worst. Yeah. So Nick and Tom, we get a good sense that they're actually going to be a good pairing together. Yeah. But it is extremely awkward at first. Like you can only imagine like Nick is deaf, mute, blind in one eye, and he gets paired up with Tom Cullen who can't read and has developmental disabilities. So like Mm -hmm. just the communication alone is just near impossible. So Nick has to mime out what he's trying to think. And he's got to hope that Tom gets these like flashes of insight, like, Oh, that's what you're talking about. Yes. We can move forward. Um, And so you see that struggle, but Nick's willing to make it work because one, Nick's a nice guy, but two, like, he's like, I got to have people with me. And, and, Mm. and he realized like, Tom's succumbing to his loneliness in ways that aren't good either. Like he's basically become a drunk because he can, right? Like he was never allowed to have alcohol before, but now everyone's dead. So, Hey, I'm just going to start drinking. And that first scene when they see each other, when Nick says, Oh my God, there's a corpse in the middle of the road. And then it just pops up. Like, uh-huh. ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it seems like Tom Collins a little bit like regressing even. You know, like like he's becoming more childlike than than he might have been otherwise, because he didn't have his support system. He didn't have the people around him that he knew well. Yeah, but I think Nick's companionship really helps Tom in that way. Even though, like, the most maddening thing for me as a reader is that every time I thought about it, the fact that Tom doesn't know Nick's name. Yeah. Nick has no way to convey this. Like, like there's, there's no way to, to mime his name. No. And so just like, this is like, they, they are connected at this fundamental way and dependent upon each other for their survival in so many ways. But one of them doesn't know the other's name. And that's just so like, like, ah, come on, just find a way. 
But Tom doesn't even know he doesn't know his name. Like he doesn't even acknowledge that to some yeah, extent. He just calls he, him Mister. He just calls him Mister. Like it doesn't even, you know. Yeah. Like I was sort of expecting there to be a big reveal of like, oh, your name's Nick. Okay, when when they finally meet up with other characters. But uh, if that happens, we don't we don't get it. Well, that's like the next pairing is is Nick and Julie Lowry. Like mm-hmm. as soon as they met a third person, I thought finally. Nick's going to just write down a whole bunch of stuff. Like, these are the things I've been trying to get across to Tom. This person can help me. Yep. Right. And that goes sideways so fast that they, <laughs> he doesn't even get a chance to do the name. No. Like, oh, man, we missed an opportunity. So. Yeah. So Julie Laurie is the youngish character. Like, we don't get a good sense of her age. Uh, Nick comments that she could probably be whatever age you wanted her to be, and she would play uh-huh. that part. She's very manipulative, very needy, very narcissistic. And as soon as she meets up with Nick, unfortunately, Nick can't, to your point, he's excited to have that third person. And she immediately tries to seduce him for sex and he's not up for it. And then he succumbs to it very quickly. And then when she meets Tom, she's put off by him and things go bad really quick, like you said, and she's eventually shooting at them. Uh, mm-hmm. and running off and it's like whoa what what happened here and this is to your point earlier about how you can't really pick who you want to be with right you yeah. a lot of this is luck like you're going to run into people in this big expansive vast country that we live in eventually you're going to run into people and the hope is hey i hope they're a good guy and i hope that we get along because we don't have much choice here totally all right to our next strange bedfellows we have Joe, who is the feral boy we're talking about earlier, and and like Tom not knowing Nick's name, we don't know if Joe's name is Joe. It's just what Nadine, who is a former teacher, calls him. She encountered this boy somewhere along the way and has sort of taken him in. And we first meet Nadine and Joe as they are stalking Larry, Mm -hmm. and Joe seems to want to kill Larry. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and Nadine's doing all, all she can to sort of keep Joe from from killing because I think Nadine is like Nick in that she needs a third person both to help her handle Joe and her own loneliness and being able to communicate with somebody. And she sees something in Larry that's important, but that Nadine and Joe relationship is sort of odd. And the one thing that sort of drove me sort of weird on this, I'd be interested in your thoughts, Jay, is what's Joe's deal? Because from a timing perspective, the flu only started, what, three, four weeks ago in, in book terms from their perspective and like i just sort of can't imagine a you know 10 12 13 year old however old joe's supposed to be boy sort of going native that quick yeah it does seem like it happened too fast uh if that's what happened to him like i don't know if he was already problematic like and obviously characters deal with different ways but like can you see a boy going from sort of a normal boy to running around with a knife in his underwear trying to kill people like and not communicating verbally in two and a half weeks yeah i mean i was gonna guess something along those lines like if he were a healthy well-adjusted boy before the plague and then he watched his parents die and his friends die and found himself all alone i don't think he would have gone full feral within you know the couple of weeks that we're talking about here but i think it's probably likely that he was not a healthy well-adjusted kid uh, to begin with and the trauma of watching everybody die around him and not understanding what's going on and not understanding why he's still alive and everybody isn't, that could that could send him over the edge. 
Yeah, I suppose so. I, I mean, look at so. look at how rough Larry's acting. <laughs> you know, for the most part, Larry was pretty well adjusted guy. You know, he he had he had his his some social issues <laughs> and maybe some drug abuse problems, but he was he was pretty close to losing his mind at one point. You know, he was hallucinating his motorcycle coming back to life to eat him. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess so. <laughs> so when the three of them get together, it is a very awkward triangle. Yeah. To say the least. And especially when we learn a little bit more about Nadine and she's having this like weirdly mystical dream about about different people and she sees Larry as somebody who might be there to to help take her virginity in some way because she sees that as important like there's something going on with Nadine that I'm not following her vibe altogether with like all that weird mystical shit is, is not sitting well with me and Nadine. And so when she's looking at Larry in a much different way than like, let's say Franny's looking at Stu, like mm -hmm. Franny's a normal girl and she's looking at Stu as a healthy, normal man is like, Hey, I sort of dig him. And Nadine's looking at Larry is like, Ooh, this might help with my mystical bond that I feel like I am drawn and meant to be part of. And I don't know how he, that, plays in with the young boy as well but i have a part to play and larry might be part of that i mean i get the impression that nadine has a somewhat let's say an un unhealthy relationship to sex yes and the fact that she has deliberately not had sex to, to this point in her life i think she has arranged the act of sex in her mind as some sort of almost fanatically religious slash mystical thing where yeah like the right person in the right circumstance will fulfill some kind of prophecy right like it, it she has elevated it in her mind to that level <laughs> and it's definitely not where larry is like yeah larry's no, sort not, of like hey any port in the storm type of guy it seems like uh yeah um <laughs> i think if she were a little closer to to where larry is uh if she weren't elevating it to this like prophecy level type of thing she could be a little bit more easygoing about it. If she wanted to have sex with somebody, she can and then move on with her life because she is a person in the world with agency over her body, etc. But that's not how she sees it. And that's, uh, I think, a big part of her you know, defining characteristics. And fortunately or unfortunately for her, I think the nature of this, this devastation of the human population and the introduction of magic into the world in the form of a flag it's almost like confirming her her thoughts it's mm. you know it's like telling somebody who has a delusion that their delusion is actually correct yeah whether it is correct or not whether she's just convinced herself it's correct it, she's still in an unhealthy place and it could be dangerous for herself and the characters around her that's my take on it. That, that's my amateur armchair psychoanalysis of yeah. Nadine. And I think Joe, obviously, he's not picking up on all that detail. But like, he has put Nadine in his mind as sort of, if not a mother figure, at least a protector of some sort. And that the two mm -hmm. of them have some sort of relationship. And adding Larry to it, Joe sees as a potential rival in some way. If not, yeah. if not a sexual rival, a, a, a emotional rival, a, you know, a tension rival. And so luckily Larry's able to find a guitar and a good guitar. And in a not so subtle way, King lets us know that music will soothe the savage beast. And, and Larry's able to make a friend of Joe. 
So that that strange bedfellows by the end of this chapter, we've sort of overcome that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I totally did not remember the character of Joe from the first time I read the book. And when we first meet him and he's, you know, this knife wielding, unpredictable, dangerous character. My first reaction was, oh, no, Larry's going to have to kill him or something like yeah. he's going to need to be removed from the plot by being killed. I don't see another way around this. And then, you know, in short order, <laughs> King basically turns him into this incredibly interesting and sympathetic character just by introducing the, the whole guitar yeah. line to him. I was like angry at myself, like, what's wrong with you? Why did you why did you just <laughs> assume that the only solution to this was just killing this character? And he's a little kid and he's got problems. He needs help. Don't just like erase him as a as an issue. Like, OK, yeah. It was funny because I thought the same thing because I did. I also didn't remember Joe from my first reading. And I'm like, boy, if Larry kills this kid, like that's going to be too far gone. Like Larry has some issues that make him a well-rounded character, but he's mm-hmm. still been sympathetic to for the most part, even with his rough edges. But I'm like, killing a kid is going to really sort of put a thumb on the balance there where like he's not going to be a likable character. But luckily that all worked out. Yep. For now. all right jay so we've hinted at it a little bit with some of the discussion of the religious perspective but uh there seems to be some uh, dark tower thinnies in this section oh there are many that we found at one point nick is thinking about how you know he's used to hitchhiking Mm -hmm. doing all this walking and bicycling he just wishes that there'll be somebody who comes along and and picks him up and he's like it would be some perfectly ordinary american car a chevy biscayne or a pontiac tempest never a honda or a mazda or a yugo and i was thinking oh or a takuro spirit it seemed like the right place you know they're they're in nebraska and, and we're talking about cars and with weird names and i'm like that would have been a perfect one to slide in there yeah would have been nice i actually had to look up chevy biscaynes and pontiac tempest because those cars are so old and didn't have huge production runs that i didn't i didn't remember that those were actual names of cars but they did exist for a short time i don't know how realistic it would be to have those types of cars running on the road in 1990 i think this is another uh king it would have been it would have been nice to to update that a little bit but you know this also gets back to what we were saying earlier about king making an american novel and he's really calling out american cars here and hitchhiking itself seems to be like a very much an American thing yeah. during a certain time period. Right. I'm sure people hitchhike in Europe and stuff too, but when I think of a hitchhiker, it makes me think of the American roads. Yep. And there's a reason for that. In other parts of the world, there's like really good train systems <laughs> and stuff like, you know, you don't you necessarily need to hitchhike. Yeah. You could just buy an inexpensive train ticket and get anywhere you want. And there's not massive distances that you need to traverse by a car like you do through the West and Midwest. Right. So there was a, a passage when one of the characters, like, was it Larry? Felt like an eye had opened in the darkness. Yeah. And there was an eye watching over and just kind of scanning. And of course, this was uh, almost a direct reference to Sauron in the Dark Tower. Oh, not the Dark Tower, duh. <laughs> <laughs> in the Lord of the Rings. But also, to me, it's a reference to the Crimson King mm. in the Dark Tower. You know, that giant red eye just sweeping over the land like a big spotlight. Yep. Just looking back and forth and whispering, tee hee hee, you can't get me. I'm the Crimson King. Tee hee. (laughs) 
so one of the characters that eventually joins up with Nick's crew is a young girl named Gina who has a broken leg. I think she, they hear her yelling yep. and crying from the side of the road and, and they're able to, luckily they have a vet with them. Um, doctors never seem to survive plagues. This seems like a TV trope, but like doctors never seem to survive plagues, but vets always seem to. There's always one vet who's got just enough medical experience to do this. Anyhow, the way Gina broke her leg was falling out of a barn, which calls back to the last rung of the ladder, which we read that is also directly related to the stand. Mm, yes. And we talked about that on a Patreon bonus episode. We did. There was a, a moment when Larry was kind of you know, dealing with his own personal character growth. And, and there are a couple of passages where King's getting, he's sort of like ham-fisting it a bit. And he's talking about how Larry is growing as a character. He's come through this mm. experience and he's, he's on the other side. Um, there's one line that stood out to me. Maybe he had come out the other side, but some of the old childish Larry had come out with him, tagging along at his heels like a shadow which has shrunk in the noonday sun, but has not entirely disappeared. And that reminded me very much of Eddie's brother. Mm, yeah. A big part of who Eddie was and the motivations for what Eddie did, starting with the drug abuse and addiction to getting stuck running money and doing silly deals for the mob, and then ultimately becoming a gunslinger, all started from the abuses, mostly you know, psychological that he had from his older brother. Right. And I, I think like with Larry, it's like the older version of himself with Eddie, it's the older brother, but both of them never really escaped that tormentor. Both of them never really moved totally beyond that person that was always an anchor dragging them down. Hmm. And anytime Eddie had a real challenge to face, he always had to first overcome the memory of his brother. And it seems like any time Larry has to overcome something really challenging in this story, he needs to overcome that older version of himself. Yeah. So I just saw that was a really big parallel for a character who we have already talked about is feeling like a twinner of Eddie. Yeah. So here's just another reason why. Exactly. Yeah. I think Larry is overall the most interesting character that we've encountered so far. Mm hmm. Just because of all that conflict within him and, and change that he's going through. And I think that that's a, a good example that you brought out here. So this is less of a dark tower thinny than it is a shining thinny. But we're told that Mother Abigail says, My own grandmother used to call it the shining lamp of God, sometimes just the shine. And this is the oh. feeling that you get. And I'm like, yeah, it's right there. Obviously, you know, to some extent, Jake has a little bit of that in, in the dark tower. But we really know it from from the shining and it just carries over here with mother abigail when i read that line it, it sort of just floored me because i never even tried to guess where king came up with that term mm. the idea of this telekinesis superpower that danny torrance has right in the shining great i'm familiar enough with that concept that i accept the story uh, or and understand what's happening but the shining the name he's given it Yep. It was completely original. I've never seen anything come close to that. So I just accepted it on its face. But here it's like, was that just it? Is it was that just the shining lamp of God just 
truncated right the way abigail just did yeah like mind equals blown like king just explained how he came up with the title to one book in the mouth of a character in another book it's great yeah i i i'd have to go back to the shine to see how dick holloran i believe is his name um how he talks about it in the shining because i think he yeah. just says i think he just calls it the shine or the shining to when he's explaining it to to danny um but yeah i thought that was interesting as well so another thingy was that um when abigail's talking about evil she specifically references big e evil versus just plain evil and this comes up when she asks how much do you know about the dark man do you know who he is I know what he's about, but not who he is. He's the purest evil left in the world. The rest of the bad is little evil. Shoplifters and sex fiends and people who like to use their fists. So that was just like with Callahan in Salem's Lot, where Callahan was this priest on a mission. He was tired of dealing with everyday, banal, little e-evil. He wanted to go on a quest and fight big e-evil. He wanted that challenge. He wanted to use his faith to, to you know, make a difference in the world. All in one fell swoop, and you know, he got what he asked for, in in his fight against Barlow, and then later in the Dark Tower, where his adventure continues. But this is Abigail, like perfectly aware, and again another, another religious figure, another Christian religious figure, yeah. talking about evil and capital E evil. And there's an important difference. Right. And that flag falls squarely into the latter category. Yep, definitely. So when Mother Abigail and Nick have their discussion about everything, King says, she shook her head patiently. Nick, all things serve the Lord. Don't you think this black man serves him too? And that's very close to all things serve the beam in this place. Mother Abigail has inserted the Lord instead of the beam. So subtle, but it, it's there. Absolutely. I caught that line too. And just going back to what I was saying earlier about how if you look at this through the Dark Tower lens, these things don't necessarily need to be religious or specifically Christian, but their power and their foundational attributes still can remain. So Abigail might be thinking about the Lord that all things serve, but maybe that's just one manifestation of the beams. Yeah, could be. I dig it. There's a line that um, I know it's just lamplight that's being described, but it still seems powerful. The line, the darkness was pushed back. Mm. We know that this is a story about good versus evil. And the Dark Tower is a story about, ultimately, the good triumphing over the worst evil ever. Right. And the fact that at some point, even in this modest way of a lamp lighting a room or lighting a, a path on a road, but the darkness was pushed back just a little bit. <laughs> that seems like a win yeah, on the side of good. Yeah. And a final thing I, I, I added to the thinny section here is uh, King and his so-called secrets. There's a real magic to the word when King uses the word secret, and it's in some of his titles, like Secret Window, Secret Garden, and, mm. and things like that. And there's a line here, for a moment they listened to the steady rustle of the rain which had been falling for almost an hour now. Alone, it would have been a desolate sound. In company, it was a pleasant secret sound, closing them in together. Yeah, so that gets back to what we were talking about before, how all these characters are dealing with loneliness mm -hmm. and how something that 
if you were alone and it happened to you or you heard or you saw brings about that desolation. Yeah. But when you have somebody that you can share it with, it makes all the difference in the world. Right. And King's use of the word secret here, that it's a secret sound. It almost doesn't make sense. It's because of the the companionship. It's because of those around that it has this secret sound. But it's not a secret. They can all hear it. It's not personal. It's not private. But there's something magical about this sound, and it is that magic is the secret. Yeah, because one person, like like a secret, is something you share, right? Yeah. So it, it's something between two people that you can share, and that's what a secret is. And so that's what works. It it implies some sort of company, some sort of togetherness. That's a good point. Good stuff. All right. Well, we move from our dark tower thinnies to our yucking it up section. Sean, why don't you take it away? Yeah, so now that the the plague is over, there's not quite as much gross stuff happening, uh, especially in this section where it does seem to be a lot of camaraderie and getting people together, not as much bad stuff happening. Sure, we see a a pig get get slaughtered and some chickens beheaded, but the only one that really stuck out for me is sort of yucking it up was when Nick and Tom encounter the tornado and the way that King describes the tornado is that the plank siding of the barn being pulled out board by board, pulled out and whirled up into the cloudy air, like rotted brown teeth being pulled out by invisible forceps. And I think I've mentioned on the show before, um, Marathon Man, which mm-hmm. is a one in which a dentist does some torturing uh, on, on people's teeth. So I already have some teeth issues to begin with. So when I read this one, even though it's not real teeth and it's just a metaphor for the barn falling apart, uh, it still got me a little bit. That's a pretty good metaphor. We're hoping for some more yucking it ups in future episodes because we love this section. Yeah. Sean, we got some new reviews and emails from our listeners, didn't we? We did indeed, Jay. And the first one I wanted to talk about is a email that we got from Liz and Liz wrote us a nice long email uh, about how much she enjoys the show and how she encountered the dark tower and how she's excited about our stand coverage. And Jay, before our second episode of the stand even came out, she said that she was excited to hear about it because until she read drawing of the three, Larry Underwood was my all time favorite book character ever. Um, and and she says how much she met him. And he was just the best until I met Eddie. It was love cool. at first sight with Eddie and his humor. And she asked, do you gentlemen think, as I do, that Larry Underwood and Eddie Dean are perhaps twinners? So, Liz, I'm sure that when you listen to our second episode and have listened to the rest of it, that you can see that we made that exact same connection as well. Yes, for sure. Thank you, Liz, for your email. A lot of uh, really nice stuff. Yeah, probably the nicest thing uh, that that Liz said in her email was that she enjoys us very much. You are neither pretentious snobs nor vacuous silly twits, as I have encountered elsewhere in my podcasting adventures. <laughs> I, I think we might put that on the uh, movie review for, for Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Neither pretentious snobs nor vacuous silly twits. Indeed. I might have a t-shirt made up for that. <laughs> I am not a vacuous silly twit. Oddly enough, Liz, my wife thinks I am some of those things, so I appreciate it. (laughs) So, Jay, we also had a couple of recent five-star reviews on iTunes, and those always catch our attention. One from Oi Fantastic, which 
potentially could be Jay just putting putting reviews in iTunes for us ourselves. I think Oi is more than fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So uh Oi Fantastic uh enjoyed our coverage of the Dark Tower and is looking forward to our podcast for the stand. So thank you, Oi Fantastic. Hope you're enjoying this. And then D Steck Jr. also enjoys our show and says that we are interesting and intelligence conversations between us. Thank you very much for those reviews. And just a reminder that uh, putting us on iTunes and giving you a review really helps other people find and discover the show. So if you could do that, that would be great. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. So we want to take a second to also mention our patrons. Our patrons support our show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. They do so by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And there you can sign up at one of our three levels and get access to that bonus material, including bonus episodes. We've done a couple on the stand and uh, we have more coming. So every month we've got a new bonus episode for you to check out. So we want to thank Travis M and Steve R, who both recently signed up at the apprentice level. Well, Jay, I think it's that time. What time is it? It's fun stuff time. Oh, yeah. I love fun stuff. So there are multiple references to weasels in this section of the book. A lot of weasel references. Yeah, it, it's sort of surprising. Um, and that's even before we get to Abigail having to, to fed them off on the road back from uh, her neighbor's house where she killed the chickens. And anytime I think of weasels, I think of the Mothers of Invention album cover, Weasels Ripped My Flesh, which I believe my mom had in her vinyl collection. And um, it is one that has stuck with me for. Anytime I think of weasels, I think of it. So uh, thanks, King, for bringing that to my attention. Excellent. Weasels are not an animal you encounter very often. Uh, so when, when King brings them up two or three times in the course of a couple pages, it's, it's pretty noticeable. So I thought that this was pretty funny. Uh, when Harold and Franny decide to put a sign, and actually Harold uh, is the one who paints the, the message on the roof of the barn, he does so in a way that he wants it to be highly visible yeah. to passing travelers. And he risks life and limb to do this. And then when uh, Larry and Nadine get there, they didn't even see any of the sign until he purposely like climbed up into the barn to see what was going on and then saw the sign. It just was hilarious to me that this incredible sign that that Harold risked, you know, falling off the roof and breaking all of his limbs to paint <laughs> wasn't even all that easily seen. Yeah. So adding to our stand cookbook uh, recipes, uh, we have the Underwood deviled ham and Underwood deviled chicken on potato chips recipe. So that's Ooh. another one to try. We're, we're going to have a pretty full cookbook by the end of this series, I think. I'm pretty sure that a lot of the recipes are going to be variations of canned meat and crackers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey you make do with what you got exactly oh so this one kind of caught my eye unlike larry but like harold i am a fan of payday bars ah i really like them as a candy bar and one of the things i like about them is that they don't have chocolate i like chocolate don't get me wrong it's not the point <laughs> but it's one of the few candy bars that you can buy just about anywhere that isn't overly sweet so that's usually my go-to if I just want to have a snack around or just keep one handy, keep a payday around. But for some reason, every time we get a payday mentioned here, it's specifically a chocolate payday. Yeah. I even did some research in this. 
There were a couple of rare occasions when special edition paydays were released that had that were dipped in chocolate, but basically there is no such thing as a chocolate payday. So why did King do this? Was he purposely trying to avoid some sort of copyright infringement or something? And if so, why call it the payday? Right. It was just weird. I know maybe this is another level of the tower that has chocolate paydays or something. Sure. But it, it made me chuckle that King would go out of his way to, to write the word chocolate in front of every payday. And I think you found in your research on it that the original version of the book didn't even use payday. It was another kind of candy bar. That's right. Red Fright, who we interviewed on one of our bonus episodes, one of the things he noticed is that the paydays were changed. They were Milky Way candy bars in the original version, mm. and then they switched to paydays. So no idea why that is. I mean, if he just wanted to add peanuts to a Milky Way, that's a Snickers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, fun stuff. Fun stuff indeed. My next one is just a, a little bit of an aside. But when Nick encounters Tom, at one point, Tom is singing, baby, can you dig your man? <laughs> <laughs> Which I just sort of like the idea that like Larry's song is ubiquitous in this world and, you know, people might just be singing it. Yeah, he, he really was about to hit the big time. <laughs> yeah. All the way across the country. You know, between that comment and your thing about the, the payday bar that, that Larry's focused in on, we probably should just take a second to talk about Inspector Larry. Yeah the detective that Larry becomes when he's looking around at, at, at the tr tracks that Harold has left, both the obvious ones, like the mm -hmm. big painting on the, on the, on the barn, but then the less obvious ones is he, you know, is trying to siphon gas from places and, and the wrappers he leaves around, he sort of builds up this whole image and just the way that Larry talks to himself in his inspector Larry mode is just fantastic. I just really love yeah. how, what King's done there. Yeah. And that's where more echoes of Eddie or, or Eddie is more, more of an echo of Larry here. It's, um, it's great. Just like he just becomes these two characters having a conversation like Sherlock and, and, and Watson. Yeah. It's wonderful. And none of the other characters seem to have this, this depth, this, this yeah. liveliness that Larry does. And it's part of why he's one of the best characters in the book. Mm -hmm. Yep. So when we were talking about Nick hitchhiking, he talks about how much the car would help him out because it would get him where he's going quicker. Yeah. And King has this nice little aside that I just thought was really wonderful. The car ate road and blew miles out its tailpipe. The car was a form of teleportation. The car defeated the map. So all of a sudden, like you could just sort of lay out this map of the United States. And if you have a car, you can get from point A to port B much better. And it just... The map is no longer a concern. It's a form of teleportation. And, and it's just an interesting way of thinking about it. You know, it's hard for us to think about that because we have cars and we can go anywhere. But when you don't have it, it, do, mm -hmm. it is a sort of a miraculous type of thing. Like, I can get from here to there in no time at all. I kind of have two perspectives on this. Like, on the one hand, it's absolutely true. A car is way faster than walking and a heck of a lot faster than riding a bicycle. But when you're talking about the distances that, that he's thinking of here, cars are still kind of slow. Like, I've driven across the country. It takes a long time. At no point during that journey that took days and days and days did I think, man, this car is just eating road and blowing miles out of its tailpipe. Never once crossed my mind. It was like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Um, 
the last fun stuff I had on the list was a line, panic crept up on him with its cloak open and gathered him in. And while this is a very evocative line on its own, it also reminded me of the winged devourers in the Beastmaster movie. Which That's because everything reminds you of Beastmaster. Everything reminds me of the Beastmaster movie. I mean, he has two ferrets, which are kind of like weasels. <laughs> But those winged devourers, those are one of the most original creatures in any movie that I've seen. They don't have mouths. They don't speak. They just kind of stand there and then they just spread these wings of skin and wrap it around the victim and digest them immediately. Pretty, pretty great stuff. Join us for more on Jay's Beastmaster podcast coming soon to an audio format near you. Yes, a wax philosophic about Rip Torn's fake nose, <laughs> terrible masks, and other things. Just as an aside, Jay, I listened to a podcast earlier this week that was about Conan the Barbarian, uh -huh. the movie, and they were saying, like, you know, it's the best fantasy movie ever, and how there's a lot of crappy fantasy movies in the early 80s, like Beastmaster, and I was like, oh, mm -hmm. Jay would be so mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I, I hold both of those movies in high regard. I've just got a couple more lines that we could cover real quick. I think Mother Abigail would have a lot in common with Franny Goldsmith's father because she says the only thing dumber than a broody hen was a New York Democrat. Hey. <laughs> Hurts, doesn't it, Jay? Stings a little. You got to remember that uh, Mother Abigail's old enough to have been probably a big supporter of the Republican Party before the switch that happened in the 60s. So for her, the Republicans were still the party of Lincoln. So she could say that about New York Democrats. I'm sure she would have changed if she had I mean, to be. She's old enough that she she could have met Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, George R. R. Martin, I think he workshopped this line that King has. King says, the book says, fear neither the terror of night nor that which flieth at noonday. And George R. R. Martin's like, oh, that's got a little bit of good there. I'm going to put the night is dark and full of terrors. It's a pretty good <laughs> rewrite of that. Yeah. So, Jay, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand, book two, chapters 46 to 49. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. You in a hurry or something? You were saying all that stuff so fast. <laughs>